Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Drum Network podcast. I'm senior reporter for Tech at the Drum, Chris Sutcliffe. We've seen that D2C brands have been big news for all sorts of reasons over the last couple of years, their remarkable growth, but also challenges around their sustainability and quality. So I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by four absolute experts who can be discussing everything to do with D2C and the D2C landscape with me, including is this an evolution that's going to continue to evolve, one that more established brands will be able to incorporate in the long run, or just a flash in the pan. And I would like to ask my uh, guests to introduce themselves, please. So Mira, could we begin with you? Hi, uh, I'm Miro Jing. I'm from the technology consulting company ePen Continuum. Uh, I'm currently leading ePen Continuum's innovation practice in China. Sure, my name is Lingzi. I work for Lando & Fitch. We're a brand transformation company, and my own focus is really around brand-led digital experience. Yep. Hi, Andy Griffiths. I am Associate Director for Growth at a growth marketing agency called Space & Time based here in the UK. Um, good to see you again, Chris. Um, hard to believe it's already two years since the last need to see one of these we did, but uh, time no, It's ridiculous, and there's been so much development in that space, obviously. I said I hope we could still talk about guitars a little bit, though. <laughs> Don't worry, we will. Fantastic. And last but not least, Jessica. Hi. Um, yeah, great to be here. I'm from Reprise Digital, um, one of the leading marketing media agencies, and I lead the e-commerce Fantastic. Well, to begin with, Jessica, could we stick with you, please? Because obviously, as we mentioned in the intro, there has been so much development in the DTC space over the past couple of years. I wondered, could you take us through some of the trends that you've seen uh, emerge and become even more important over the past two, three years? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's such an exciting space to be in, which is why I love coming into the office each day. But really, I think some of the great things that we've really seen evolve in over the last, you know, few years and beyond is just around um, what I would say, like the payment options. I think that for me has been a fascinating area to really see take off. Like we know in the commerce space that things like shopping cart abandonment is one of the main pain points when it comes to commerce. So I think, you know, rates climb as high as 70% when it comes to abandonment, but D2C brands now have the opportunity to really reduce this number and improve profitability. So one trend that I really, you know, look forward to seeing how it continues on from 2022 into throughout this year is that improving on the number of available and flexible payment options. I think aside from enabling the use of things like Apple Pay and Google Pay, which are now just ingrained in the shopping experience, it's about D2C sites offering um, buy now, pay later schemes. And that was really, it will work well, not just for expensive products, but also to help customers as we move through like obviously increased inflationary pressure as well. Um, So I think that's going to be a key one. And then the second one for me is really the brands offering the online um, offering offline experiences in addition. So we started off with like things like digitally native brands that launched and grew online. And now we're really seeing that it's a step change towards having that brick and mortar presence. So physical stores are really serving as venues for customers to test products and engage with brands as well. And more importantly for me, being an e-commerce you know, geek and practitioner, it's really interesting to see how the, these trends are pushing the lines to blur between native brands and direct consumer channels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've, you've flagged up so much there, which I know we'll get into as we go through the uh, the discussion. Uh, Lingxia, what would you say are some of the trends that you've particularly seen as well develop over the last two, three years when we talk about D2C and marketing? I think the observation is that because of big force changed their privacy settings, so that um, digital advertising and the customer acquisition become more expensive. So the uh, actually, there's observation as uh, Wabi Parker, for example, 
uh, originally really goes through digital channel now start to opening up um, retail stores as well. Everlane, that happens to Everlane as well, um, and Peloton and um, uh, Glossier. So that's a trend after, especially after COVID, it's a new channel for customer acquisition. I think that's so interesting that you, you brought uh, Wobby Parker in already because even two years ago we were talking about them as kind of being at the forefront of the DTC wave. So fascinating to hear that they're sort of transitioning back into, well, alternate ways of doing things as well. And uh, uh, Miro, we were talk- you were nodding along quite vigorously there to, to some of the points that uh, Jessica and Ling just mentioned. So yeah, to what yeah. extent do you think that there are these are existing trends that are just being accelerated and, and are there new trends that you've seen coming out? Yeah, first, I just want to say I also uh, see the same trends that Lindsay uh, just mentioned. Uh, all these uh, sort of digital native brands are now opening physical stores. Uh, that includes that one company that I follow, follow closely, uh, Shin, the, the fast fashion mm. giant from China. You know, they recently <laughs> opened a physical store in Tokyo. So definitely there is a trend going towards hybrid model. That's one thing. Another thing is, uh, as you probably noticed, uh, a lot of these Chinese brands who are ex- expanding globally, they just adopt this um, D2C model because I think they have a lot of experience with uh, with social commerce, with influencer marketing, which they cultivate in China. So they're really um, taking advantage of that globally. Uh, another thing I see, I, I call it a compressed loop between demand and the supply. Uh, you see that clearly in, in Xin's strategy, which is um, whatever they can uh, sort of observe a need or a preference on social media, uh, then it will ask its flexible uh, supply chain to quickly respond to it. So that kind of compressed uh, loop between market needs and uh, supply chain, I think is, is, is where its strengths come from. And it's an important trend for D2C brands. See, that's fascinating. And I, I wish we were doing this as a as a video podcast so you could see quite, the listeners could see quite how vigorously everybody started nodding there when you were talking about Sheen, because that seems to be sort of the, uh, the the use case that we're going to be talking about most commonly, I think. But Andy, what would you say are some of the trends that you've seen particularly develop, whether that be around kind of flexible supply chains or whether that be around that social listening that Mira was talking about and making sure that you are adjusting to what is kind of the, the bigger conversation on the fly? Yeah, I think, I think there's two, two for me. First of all, I, I'm going to do the simpler, you know, sort of not along with everything that's already been said as well. I, I think particularly, yeah, the sort of the, the approach into bricks and mortar has been quite interesting. Uh, Chris, when we spoke on this podcast, I think two years ago, it was all about how you've got sort of traditional bricks and mortars retailers sort of branching into D2C, and it's almost like we've come full circle uh, in, yeah. in a way to that extent. Uh, Miro, I'm glad you mentioned sort of some of the influence economy side of things. So I think the other key thing we'll continue to see expanding and, and have already is around social commerce. Um, everyone knows how, how great sort of a, a time that TikTok's had and, and sort of the continued growth in sort of influencer marketing. But I think kind of the the ability to have here and now an experience as you're consuming that kind of uh, media review, product demos, unboxing, et cetera, is going to continue to grow across various different platforms. And the other one I would say is this sort of continued adoption and an opportunity for particularly around sort of performance marketing, the incorporation of uh, various third-party tech and AI, um, I think is a key part as well in terms of how uh, how this will continue to try and drive their e-commerce and D2C work, not least because of the uh, the continued hunt for sort of driving the most ROAS uh, friendly sort of SKUs or campaigns or opportunities as and when they're doing it as well. So you've all flagged up some fascinating 
uh, and fast-moving trends which we've seen emerge over the past couple of years. I wondered before we move on to the next question then, we're talking about this uh, hybrid model now with D2C. Are there any brands who the panel can think of who are doing that really, really well that we should be keeping an, an eye on from transitioning to uh, you know strict D2C all the way back to hybrid? Yeah, happy to jump in there. One that's sort of... Um well worth a, a look at is um, the sort of uh, sneaker retailer kick game. Um, they've done sort of um, a really good job. I mean, a lot of their stuff is, is, is e-com based predominantly in terms of, you know, the store and, and everything you want to look at in terms of um, look and feel and, and shopping them as a brand is great. But a lot of their strength comes on um, how accessible I think they make their brand to their consumers. Um, anyone who's sort of familiar with any of their YouTube content, et cetera, will sort of be able to come across some of their, collaborations with um, rappers and sort of various sort of street and urban culture. Um, and what's really interesting is now where uh, some of their sort of key content that is, is really useful for them and, and does a great job of sort of driving the brand value piece and equity is things like where they'll take someone and go shopping with them in one of their mm. stores. And they've gone now from sort of a, a couple of stores to sort of starting to open. They've got a new one up in uh, um, Newcastle, got some of the, sort of the Newcastle uh, Premier League footballers down to kind of shop around there and stuff. And it's it's kind of a really sort of key, not just as it's another revenue stream, obviously, but a, a key expansion in terms of how people can, I think, experience their brand um, and enhance what they do with their, their e-commerce work. So, uh, Lingja, we were talking earlier about Wabi Parker and some of those other D2C brands that have, have made changes in terms of moving towards, I suppose, closer collaboration with brick-and-mortar retail. Are there any similarities in those brands that you've seen? Is it the fact that they are, you know, high, they are sort of recognizable brands now that allow them to do that? What are some of the, I suppose, the, uh, the strengths that they have that have allowed them to adopt this hybrid model? I think a lot of them really is not just about the strengths, it's really about the challenge. I think a lot of DTC right. brands at some point, they cannot scale anymore. So therefore, they are forced to either seek partnerships or um, actually seek new um, venues to, to acquire mm. new customers. So I really think it's about everybody wants to still do, be completely 100% D2C, but uh, the reality is they have to uh, adapt to the new world. And I think just to follow up your question earlier about the, the trend is in who's great and hybrid, um, because the, the, from the clients brief receive uh, in recent years, we realize uh, brands, traditional brands, actually you know, embracing the hybrid model more. They're really investing on the uh, direct-to-consumer channels, especially like um, Nike and Nestle. Um, they actually mm. trying to um, learn from D2C and um, benefit from that. So I think it's quite interesting. So hybrid in both ways. We could do an entire podcast just on what you've said there. We could spend 40, 45 minutes just <laughs> chatting about that. Well, let's move on then. And so, Jessica, I wondered, as we've seen the rise of D2C brands and as people have recognized the power that D2C brands have to kind of disrupt existing marketing channels, what would you say have been some of the changes in how we think about brand comms that have arisen over the past couple of years as we've seen how uh, D2C brands are actually doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've touched on it already. Andy was referencing it. I think that explosion of social commerce is something that is just, you know, that shift we're seeing from just purely transaction-centric to interaction-led experiences. Um, that's something that is incredible. And when I think we think about the fact that it goes really beyond comms and advertising even, I think we look at, you know, the platform-native features that, 
the big four have come out with that have really helped drive this as well. I think that's one of the key areas where we've really seen the conversations. And I think also brands be able to move their products closer to consumers in more natural um, and more intuitive ways. Um, for me, I, I love the kind of the way that it also draws on what I call intuitive experiences, which is that we've moved away from the same way in advertising and, and media where it was just push and pull comms. You know, we were just you speaking at the customers. Um, and now it's more about meeting them more than halfway. Even I would say meeting them halfway was so 2012. <laughs> um, so now you know, meeting customers more than halfway is, is the, is the crux of it and social commerce, um, conversational commerce, all of those kind of AI um, based solutions that are coming to the forefront, I think are just massively catalyzing this. Um, and we're definitely going to continue to see it go as well. And then I think from like, I would say more, not a more traditional standpoint, but I think from the kind of comms and content angle, I think it's really interesting that we're continuing to see, I think what will be more brands potentially explore building or acquiring media brands for direct to consumer growth. So if we think about it, I like to think about it in the sense of like Michelin. So eons ago, they got into the restaurant review business because they wanted to highlight good restaurants that people wanted to drive to on their tires. And many modern D2C brands are actually continuing to build themselves around the comms via owned media. So one of my favorite ones, because I'm a consumer as well of it and a um, fan from the commerce space is just Glossier. So Into the Gloss was one of their ways that they were able to improve their comms from an from the owned content that they also built, but then pushed it out through their um, email marketing, et cetera. Um, and then obviously Peloton, whose entire business model is based around like high quality content as well. Miro, how do you think that we've seen a change in brand comms as we've seen kind of the rise of the DTC brands? How are they appealing to audiences, to Jessica's point, in a more natural way? And, and what can the rest of the industry learn from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with a lot of things Jessica just said, and um, I think marketing is no longer a one-way uh, conversation. Um, it's it's multi-direction now. I think it's almost decentralized in the uh, in the sense that a consumer just don't just listen to advertising messages. I think the way they build knowledge and trust towards brands is a lot from from peers, from reviews uh, online, from influencers, from communities. So uh, I think that the, the, the way conversations are doing are completely different now. And um, I also think, I think um, a lot of keywords that are mentioned, the content marketing, social marketing, the idea is there is a blurred boundary between entertainment content and uh, mm. marketing content and advertising. I think that's, that's interesting. And then it has been going on for a while too. That that rise of kind of that entertainment based marketing is is really really interesting and it's something that we again we probably could do an entire podcast on. Andy, what sort of same question to you? Where do you see there's been an evolution in terms of how D 2 C comms are impacting and making the wider industry think about how they do communications with consumers? Yeah, I'm really glad that we're talking about brand because for me it's probably the, the biggest bit where I'm sort of eagerly munching through popcorn and uh, and wondering what's going to happen next sort of it feels like it's converging on itself a bit and that you've got i think uh an element where massive flourish had lots of dtc opportunities where almost you could think of it as um, a retail prospect where you've got an opportunity for them to facilitate a purchase um but the lack of brand equity i think in in some of those is still sort of overlooked to quite a big extent 
And brand equity for me, I think, is is one of those areas where because we tend to be so fo- focused on sort of the performance sort of conversion part of the funnel, you know, every, everything is going after not leaving revenue on the table with any of that kind of marketing around e-commerce. The brand side of the funnel is often overlooked. But if I give you one example now, um, if I was to ask um, yourselves on the, the podcast and any listeners who on any social media has probably been advertised for either downloading a um, mobile-based game or perhaps a mobile phone holder for their car um, that plugs into a vent or windscreen or something, one of those kind of things. I, I can see you all sort of smiling and nodding, <laughs> but I doubt any of you could tell me a brand name for any of them. I'd struggle. And so there you come away from it being a, a commodity piece and an mm. item you'd buy rather than a relationship with a brand or a retailer specifically. And that's where I think kind of you miss out a lot of the opportunity with things like whether it's CRM segmentation and automation. I mean, CRM work when it's done well can be 30% of a, a DCC's brand's revenue you know, of, of, of passive earn effectively. So it's a, it's a huge opportunity to have that. And it's also a point of difference. We know it impacts everything from, um, you know, your likelihood to win when you're bidding on various keywords, etc. cetera. Um, but having that kind of idea of of brand and trust, I think, is huge, particularly where you get sort of startups. You know, we've all seen the uh, the really amusing videos of what I thought I was getting from Wish and what was delivered. You know, when you when you have a new retailer, particularly in DTC, <laughs> it's really easy to think kind of, well, there's an element of risk here. And whilst the convenience prospect is there, the price is great, all that kind of stuff. It's it's how you how do you sort of take that and um, and build trust with it. Similarly, the other way around, where you've got kind of leading um, you know top selling SKUs on Amazon. Um, that arguably you might talk about being an, an Amazon brand, but then want to try and drive into different channels of distribution, perhaps through retailers or whether it's their own bricks and mortar, whatever else. Again, you need some kind of uh, brand equity, I think, to sort of justify that aspect. And that the final part of, of, of the brand piece is, you know, we're still in a really shaky economy at the moment and mm. it's likely to continue for a while. One of the biggest ways you defend um, margin uh, and premiumization and not just sort of be a rush to the bottom of, dropping a pants on price point is around having a brand that consumers will will, will choose trust and, and go to. To piggyback on, on that element around like profitability and margin, I think that's a really great point, Andy, and, and often is, I think, undervalued and, and overlooked just in terms of, I think, the promise and shininess of D2C that people often conflate with profitability, um, especially in the space. I know, you know, that's it's a double-edged sword and i think even though direct to consumer retail offers brands like really undeniable advantages like you were saying like crm better capture of customer data higher revenue per item and more control over like branding it really has to be weighed up against like the operating costs like logistically um when we think about the storefronts and customer acquisition like all of these factors i think is presenting a really interesting environment i think one of the thing one of the brands that i look at in this space as well is like ralph lauren um mm obviously in fashion and apparel and a lot of I think people don't really necessarily realize they have incredibly strong margins just because um, they end up actually relying a lot on wholesale balancing that with direct to consumer and I think it is that ability to be really savvy when you know in the D2C space actually presents that pathway to, to bigger profits. And that's one that I just think is a really interesting space, particularly when supply chains are becoming um, increasingly, um, there's more pressure in them. So yeah, that's just one that I think. So it's a really good point, Jessica, as well, in terms of the impact that has on them, things like repeat purchase. 
you know, if it, the, the cost it takes to acquire a new, a new shop. You know, we, we see it every year with, you know, Black Friday and Christmas. Everyone is, it's, everyone's bidding at the same time. It's really expensive to get that, that sale. But, you know, 70% of a, a retail brand's revenue can come in that, that period of, uh, of the year. So how do you get someone back again? That's, I think, where kind of the, the brand is there. And you talk about sort of the, the sustainability and the, the kind of uh, supply chain aspect of it. Well, it's a lot easier to manage if you've got a, a better idea of lifetime value and someone coming back and buying again. Moving on then, I wondered, we've spoken about social, we've spoken about, to some extent, newsletters. Lingja, I wondered what communications channels do you see working particularly well for D2C brands when it actually comes to doing that acquisition, that retention of brands in the long term? I think the, the obvious uh, answer is TikTok for fashion. I think different categories might have choose the different uh, social media channels to acquire customers because um, I, another example is Casper. I wouldn't imagine Casper metrics beyond TikTok just because it's just not something that you buy all the time. So perhaps Instagram may be the better option. But even for myself, I think sometimes Google is still the one of the most powerful uh, acquisition tool. I was searching for vitamin, uh, best vitamin possible, then uh, uh, run across this D2C brand that does vitamin that's personalized. So I think it really depends on the category and, and what, is, what are the micro moments you can capture those um, uh, inten- intention to buy. Yeah, that's fascinating as well. It's, I think you're completely right. The right the rise of some of the fashion brands that we've seen on TikTok has just been unbelievable. The speed with which they developed an audience has been, you know, incomplete completely unimaginable even a few years ago. Mira, what would you say then are some of the most important challenges? And so what role, you know, to, to Lingzhi's point there about, you know, different sectors, what do you think are the, the almost optimum channels that we can use if we're working in, you know, those those various verticals? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think it really depends on uh, the category you're in and uh, the kind of consumer that you target. Mm-hmm. I, I personally like to use the framework of a save time versus kill time. So if your uh, target consumers tend to be those who want to save time and want yeah. to find what they need as efficiently as possible, then I would say uh, search engine is still uh, very effective. Uh, but as there are more and more people who, who are not efficient driven, uh, actually online buying is, is uh, entertainment for them. Uh, they do it to, to kill time. So for this type of users, uh, then... Uh, social media like like TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook will be very suitable because they offer a way to kill time, a very social, fun experience. Um, again, as I, I mean, you guys mentioned that too. I mean, now shopping is uh, entertainment online, so um, so it really depends. I think that's so interesting as well because when I think about how I find products online from these D two C brands, I don't even consider that I'm actively, you know doing work for a lot of it like you said it's entertainment i'm engaging with these brands because they are fun they are engaging and they are entertainment so andy is that i suppose then when we're talking about these channels to Miro's point is it a matter of finding out you know your audience is here for primarily entertainment versus primarily shopping versus primarily you know to, to to make a big purchase how do you actually go about determining where the best channel is if you're a d2c brand these days Big yeah, question. Great question. Um, f- f- first, I'd like to kind of just seize on what, what Lindsay said there about sort of Google. Um, I think one of the key things is sort of uh, where you'll, you'll hear a DTC brand is, is talk about kind of whether they have their own DTC offering or whether they are also stocked in other retailers, et cetera, is the fact that Google isn't a search engine, it's a retailer. 
mm. for a lot of these businesses, you know, the the importance of shopping ads and the the role that these that they play as a, as an ad format. Obviously, this is much sort of potentially lower down the funnel, but if you talk about the different um, channels and sort of uh, opportunity, I think that the, the same thing goes. I think any any kind of siloed approach around sort of or you'd use uh, social for this part of the funnel or anything like that by channel is, is, is so kind of dismissed now in terms of, well, actually every single channel and opportunity plays a different part in each part of the funnel, but it's more about understanding which format, which targeting, which message is the right place and the right time. And that's sort of a bit of a cliche, I know, but uh, if you took, talk about sort of different opportunities where people are looking for inspiration, then perhaps an initial awareness piece is there. When you move down the funnel through to sort of consideration, actually we talk about kind of longer form content. Well, if it's a, a more expensive purchase and research is there, perhaps that's where YouTube plays a part because typically the consumption of longer media is there versus, you know, something that might be more around sort of review-based and good old-fashioned sort of uh, native content. So it's I think it's more about sort of, Rather than being able to kind of um, silo or typecast any kind of aspect of the of, of the media mix, I think it puts more emphasis, if anything, onto the reporting and attribution side of thing and understanding exactly what's triggering and where. And I think this is something that's going to continue. It's always been key in any kind of performance marketing, but but for DTC and e- e-commerce, the understanding to understand exactly what touch points there are is is huge. You know, you might have something that is um, there's a lot I think to be learned from sort of massive purchases or for from even for b2b um, areas where you've got kind of typically a very long sales cycle as d2c brands move into you know more and more expensive items that we never would have thought of buying just you know with a few clicks on the internet such as cars um you know suddenly you've got to think about well actually that first click engagement right through to actually a purchase could be months a year depending on what it is yeah. you're looking at doing um if it's you know if it's something that, like we talked about for entertainment, actually is quite a lot of browsing and the the experience of shopping is, is is part of it now, and consuming the different contents pieces of content across that journey is part of it. So, the the reporting and attribution piece and understanding exactly which trigger to pull where and when is is never more critical than it is now. I think, you know, we talk yeah. about the messy 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 middle. It's if anything probably the messy complete funnel. <laughs> so I think it's kind of apparent uh, <laughs> pretty much all the way through. It's fascinating that you mentioned kind of that buying a car because I just watched over the course of about a year my dad go through that process of finding a car online, sort of researching it, going down that funnel, and then giving up right at the end and just going to a, a car dealership. So it's been a frustrating to have been in that conversation when he, he probably should have just gone there in the first place if that's what he's going to do. But also the fact that it's it speaks to quite how broad the DTC sector is now. So I wondered. Uh, my editor wanted me to ask this question, and I'm not sure if the panel even agrees with the premise of it. So my editor thinks that there is a perception here that uh, DTC brands are almost like, uh, super, well, not supernovas, they just sort of flare into being. They're, they shine brightly for a couple of months, years, and then they vanish because they can't keep up with either their cost basis or because they can't keep up with their competitors. Is that a fair assumption to begin with? I'd, I'd jump in there and say no, because I think mm. for every, every instance you've got of a, uh, a business that tries and then perhaps doesn't make it. We've, we've all seen sort of a new coffee shop or pub or bar startup somewhere on the high street and they haven't been around for very long. You know, DTC is not a unique channel to kind of some of the challenges of, of, of having a good product, marketing it well, building a relationship with the consumer and then being able to sustain that business. You know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, for me, it's not sort of um, uh, binary or, or a between between the two. I would suggest that it again comes down to sort of brand in terms of being able to continue and sustain a relationship with suppliers. 
some of that is also, you know, I, I love that you use the, the the car example because I think what we need to see if there is a nuance with it as a channel for being flash in the pan or not. I think it does um, invite uh, potentially a bit more scrutiny or different types of scrutiny um, because we are um, potentially coming across brands or retailers that we may not be familiar with. Perhaps we are a bit more um, tentative to trust at first and we are perhaps a bit more likely to scrutinize things like sustainability or their credentials mm. in sort of, you know, their corporate social responsibility or, or, or things like that. It was a great sticking on the car theme. I had a great chat the other day with, with someone around um, the fact that you've got um, a product in Tesla that is seen as market leading. It builds a lot of brand equity on its green credentials, its tech. Um, it has a uh, huge reach, really well known. It is effectively available as a D2C product as, as well. However, the, the the flip side of that is increasing scrutiny, and this is off the back of the trends we've seen around greenwashing, et cetera, mm. about the fact that a lot of the battery and technology is mined using fossil fuels in various countries with not particularly great sort of green standards. So I think it, it invites kind of that, again, going back, I guess, Jessica, to your supply chain piece earlier around kind of the scrutiny on what happens throughout that and the need to be able to do it not just profitably but responsibly. I wonder then to what extent is it a generational thing where we know that sort of younger consumers in particular who have grown up interacting with these brands on say social whether that be on TikTok whether that be on Instagram that they are more likely to follow that path from the very the very start of the funnel right the way through to purchase is that where that perception of you know I suppose uh it being sort of flashing the pan is coming from that generational disparity. I don't know. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Um, I have, yeah, I have been thinking about that because we did see some sort of step spectacular sort of rise and force of DTC mm. brands. Some brands that got, got sort of famous and hot in a short period of time, but they it's hard for them to sustain their uh, success. Um, I think there is, there is something uh, interesting there. I think, because some of the assumed uh, advantages of D2C are, are, are difficult to, to sustain. For example, um, they are usually pretty good at digital channels, but very quickly, I think, the, 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 uh, as, as many of you mentioned, the, the acquisition cost in, on social media is rising very quickly. And also often at, at the beginning, they differentiate themselves with uh, some interesting, uh, fresh brand stories, uh, cool designs. Uh, but those can be easily um, uh, imitated by, by competitors. Mm. So, so it is, uh, there's a mm. reason uh, to, to say it's, it's hard to see the success of these brands to, to sustain. Uh, but again, I think things are changing, uh, particularly when we see a new example, I'm going to use Xin again. When you again uh, combine that with uh, a smart supply chain, that means you can keep generating uh, new products uh, very fast uh, in response to uh, consumer preference that gives them a more sustainable uh, mode. Uh, I, I think we're going to see more of that. I think uh, the, the sort of the previous advantage in, in marketing with DTC brand can be translated into better consumer insights that inform supply. Uh, I think that's something that could give sort of DTC brands, uh, I think, a new uh, evolution. But as we come to the end of this one, I wondered what are the panel's predictions for the next couple of years, the future trends in and around DTC marketing? Uh, Lingxia, could we begin with you, please? Could you tell us some of your predictions for what is going to emerge, what's going to become more important over the next couple of years? I really just think the, the future is about the hype being hybrid. And I think um, on your question before, I think if you think about startups and this ex, uh, exit strategies, successful ones would be either go IPO or being bought by another mm. 
a bigger brand. But I think the challenge of that for D2C is they have to focus on really short-term financial goals. They have to meet those financial goals. Whereas bigger brands, they can take the step uh, speed a little slower. They can focus on a lifetime value, which is something I think a lot of uh, D2C brands don't even have that um, uh, uh, the timescape to, to worry about, they worry about tomorrow. So I think yeah. there's a, something to learn from um, big brands to learn from D2C and vice versa. And the hybrid model would be um, probably the future trend. Jessica, what would you say then are some of the trends that you expect to see emerge, um, continue to develop over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think continuing on with my spiel from before, I think, um, you know, the one that will continue to just be punctuated even further is what I like to even think as a shift away from D to C and actually DWC. So moving from direct to the customer to direct with the customer, um, not a groundbreaking idea, but easier said than done for a lot of <laughs> you know, some of the world's leading brands and retailers. So I'm excited about that, I think, from just a kind of consumer experience, like personalization angle, I think is, you know, um, a zero party data hopefully takes off and becomes like a trustworthy source of being, you know, compliant and able to, you know, refine your personalization strategy. Um, that way, I think that's going to be interesting. But I, the other ones I am incredibly enthusiastic about is um, like resale and re-commerce. I think sustainability, it was referenced earlier, is something that is only going to become even more, um, you know, prominent as a way that I think motivates consumers to purchase. Like everyone is more savvy now. Like tra- supply chain transparency is um, is not just a nice to have; it's a need to have. Um, and I think when we talk, think about the way that I think re-commerce works, it's it's really definitely taken off in the fashion and apparel space. But mm-hmm. if you think about um, platforms like eBay, they sell you know, between four and 10 refurbished items every single minute. And I just think that's an area where we can see massive benefits, not just from the obvious kind of CSR, like PRing, that's great. And and that's one piece of the puzzle, but there's actual revenue implications around it as well. If you put clothing onto rental resale platforms, the frequency of hire and the pricing that it goes on at creates that margin where you can actually gain up to 110% increase in revenue. So it, from you know inventory, distribution, sustainability angle, extending the product life cycle of items um, to balance purpose and profit, I mean, what more could you want? And if it drives the industry forward, even better. So call me an idealist, fine, but <laughs> I that's where there's gonna be great traction. Well, if you're an idealist, then so is the rest of the panel, because there was a lot of nodding during that, so fantastic. And uh, Mira, what would you say then are your predictions for this, whether that be, you know, evolution of channels, whether that be, you know, the increased, uh, Lucia's point about on increased focus on hybrid, what do you see as being the future here? Uh, I think it will be an evolution of business model. Uh, what I mean is, um, so the key advantage of DTC is being closer to, to consumers, uh, but how do you translate that into a more superior business model? What I'm seeing right now is a trend that you can actually take advantage of a smart and flexible supply chain. I'm going to repeat myself. It is about actually constructing a loop between mm-hmm. uh, the demand you see in the market and a uh, uh, fast responding supply chain that immediately so give people what they want. It's almost a uh, product in demand. Uh, for me, that is uh, a superior model that um, DTC brands have advantage in. 
Fantastic. And Andy, I'm going to give you the final word on this then. I think as we did last time, actually, we spoke oh, to you as well. No, 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 that's true. Yeah, but no, no pressure then. Um, so <laughs> I would say, well, th- first of all, I would say I, I just reiterate my point at the start around sort of social commerce. It's been sort of the, uh, a big trend, but I think it will continue to grow. It, it, it's, it's, for me, still the singular biggest way where um, a prospective consumer or existing advocate of your brand can not just sort of shop for you but actually experience what you're doing through someone else and through very accessible content that's shareable and, and where they can sort of you know essentially essentially advocate for a, for a brand or product so that would be one um and i would say the other one would be uh if that's on sort of how you can leverage some of the brand and product i still think we're going to see um greater continuation the adoption of ai at sort of the performance end of of, of what we're doing there's, there's all sorts of stuff we're already doing with uh, with, with clients. We look at sort of full funnel from first engagement right the way through to, to retention and advocacy, where you look at how can you optimize things like Google Ads shopping feeds for sort of creating segments and buckets of products that are perhaps, you know, a ROAS of a certain amount and trying to, you know, that, that there will always, I think, be and continue to be further focus on driving that real sharp end kind of commercial e-commerce model to try and uh, drive profitability around e-commerce for it at the same time. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time together. And I say this almost every episode we do, but it's more true in this one than it's ever been before. We didn't have the time to to discuss this. <laughs> you know, we could have spoken about any one of those questions for the entire half an hour. So um, yeah. if, if anybody wants to get in contact with you and maybe pick your brains about any of the topics, any of the ideas that you brought up, and you did bring up so many, so thank you for that. Where's the best place for them to reach out to you? Let's start with uh, with Miro. Where's the best place for them to find you? Um, the best place will be LinkedIn. I think it's it's easy to find me on LinkedIn, and that's that's where actually I post a lot of my uh, articles. Fantastic. And Andy. So yeah, uh, easy to find on uh, on LinkedIn as well. Um, uh, if you're looking for several Andy Griffiths, I'm the one that looks like an egg wearing glasses um, <laughs> due to the, the haircut. But then the other way to get in touch more directly is through our website, which is www.spaceandtime.co.uk. And um, you can sort of contact us via the email address hello at spaceandtime.co.uk. Perfect. And Lingja? You can find me on LinkedIn, and I'm sure I'll add um, everyone in the panel on LinkedIn as well, and also through the company website, landwindandfidge.com. Perfect, thanks. And Jessica? Yep, unsurprisingly, it's LinkedIn. Um, (laughs) If you put my full name, Jessica Chaplow, in there, um, that's the place, because I'm trying to New Year's resolution be off social media less. Um, (laughs) And I'd say um, company website as well, um, which... Um, is great when I get questions coming through that channel. Um, for us, it's reprise digital all one word .co.uk. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Miro, Andy, Lingja, and Jessica. That has been a fascinating chat. Um, we'll include all the names, job titles, and company sites in the show notes. So please do check them out if you want to follow any of our fantastic panel. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Please do stick around. Go to thedrum.com where we write about D2C marketing, marketing, media, tech in general every single day of the week. So go to thedrum.com for more. But for now, thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.